This is Barry.FYI, a project designed to capture stories of personal experiences and life lessons for the young and impressionable. Your hosts are Matthew Barry, Amy Barry Smith, and Jessica Barry Woodward. Join us in a series of interesting interviews of family members and friends. We hope you'll enjoy learning a few things about the Barry family. To another episode of Barry.FYI. This is Matt Barry in Houston, and I'm talking today with my father, Bob Barry, in Moon Township. Our discussion in this episode is going to explore some childhood and family experiences growing up in Iowa. So, you grew up in Iowa, the tall corn state. So, let's warm up with Iowa corn. They say. Knee-high by July. Yes. Did you ever wander out into the cornfield and measure? Uh, well, uh, corn's much higher than the knee on the 4th of July uh, in Iowa. The uh, Did I ever wander around the cornfield? No, that's that's quite dangerous because the uh, the corn is very quickly above your head. <laughs> it doesn't it doesn't grow as tall as it used to. They've they've done something so it's not quite as tall, but. Uh, because I suppose that's wasteful, but uh, you you really don't want to wander around in a cornfield by yourself, even though the rows are straight and you can sort of see the end. That's uh, not something one does. Well, your father, uh, Percy, several times drove me out into a cornfield riding shotgun in his car. Yeah, straight through some very tall cornfields, and that was scary the first time, but it was fun the other times. So was was that the origin of the phrase "official berry shortcut"? <laughs> Maybe. Uh, Percy grew up on a farm, as my mother Rusty did. Although Rusty's story is a little more complicated, but Percy simply grew up on a farm. Uh, uh, hundred and hundred and sixty acres, a standard Iowa quarter square mile farm. And uh, his what what he learned was he did not want to be a farmer. So the first chance he got, he left. Uh, I never lived on a farm, although I had cousins on farms and visited plenty of farms. So uh, I've, but I never really worked on a farm other than uh, sort of playing at a little bit here and there. Do you ever do uh, childhood jobs like detasseling corn or walking beans? Uh, no, I never did those. Uh, I was never quite old enough to work on a detasseling team, although that was certainly something people did. In my uh, high school class, people living in, in the town went out on a detasseling crew. That was a vivid two weeks, I think, in uh, late summer. Uh, but I never did. But you had to have a minimum age. And by the time I got to that age, I had some other kind of a job. I never really walked beans. Um, and I don't miss any of that. I, mean, I, I had plenty, plenty of Iowa weather just peddling papers. That was enough for me. All right, so let's um, dive into the family and start with your father, uh, Percy, you just mentioned. Uh, so your parents were Percy Berry and Florence Rusty Flanagan, married yes. in uh, June 1936 in Williamsburg, Iowa. Uh, so where were they living when you were born? In uh, Van Horn. Percy had grown up in Van Horn, which is the little town in Benton County, Iowa which is perfectly flat 
and has absolutely beautiful soil. To understand Iowa, you have to understand flat and soil. 25% of the Class A farmland in the world is in Iowa. Another 25% is in Illinois and Indiana and neighboring states. But uh, that part of the country has soil put down by the glaciers that is absolutely perfect for raising almost anything, particularly corn. Corn is the highest value per acre row crop corn. So if you're going to grow something, you grow corn. I looked it up. Uh, and learned that the corn roots there grow to five feet deep on average and some up to 10 feet deep in some locations of the state, depending on water availability. So I think you're right. The, the topsoil there is legendary. The water story is just as important. There are a lot of big rivers in Iowa, but the important water is underground. There's a huge underground river flowing from the Rocky Mountains to the Mississippi. So the water that you actually use for farming is uh, somewhat underground. So if you want to d drill a water well, for instance, you go down 20 feet, you got plenty of water. So the uh, if you want to do something besides rainwater, and there's plenty of rain in Iowa, if you want to do something beyond that, it's very easy to irrigate. So you have a combination of really hot summers, really cold winters, plenty of water and beautiful soil, and anything will grow, uh, particularly corn. And hybrid corn only goes back about a century, but it was developed in Iowa. And uh, that made the difference between small yields of maybe 20 bushels an acre to now 200 or 300, whatever you want to put in, how much effort you want to put into uh, raising corn. So corn is, corn is very important. Uh, so Percy was raised on a, a corn farm, but in those days one also kept a few animals. You'd have cows and chickens and pigs, which is important because Percy's older brother, Donald, when he was three years old, was kicked by a horse and died. That's part of the farm culture. It's a very dangerous business right down to childhood days. So Percy graduated from high school when he was 15, went off to college at Loris College in Dubuque, Iowa, graduated he graduated high school in 1928. He graduated from college in 1932. Graduating from college in 1932 was very poor timing because there simply weren't any jobs in the whole world. Percy had intended to be a doctor. When he graduated from Loris, having had four years of a wonderful time, he didn't qualify for any medical school. Hmm. So he always wanted to be a doctor anyway, and when he later on went in the Army, he volunteered for the medical service and became a field doctor, chopping people off, fingers off, and whatever you do. And he, and he earned a, a medal for bravery in the face of the enemy, armed only with the Red Cross on his helmet. Mm -hmm. Now, Rusty grew up as the seventh of ten children in a farm in Iowa, in a different county, Iowa County. Her story was more complicated, but her father was her father was older. Her father had already retired from farming. He owned two farms, had money in two banks. He was living in the town of Marengo, and, uh, which is the county seat of Iowa County, and was uh, semi-retired. He worked as a handyman or something, but anyway, he wasn't really working anymore. Then the Depression came along. He lost the money in both banks. He lost both farms for mortgage. He lost the larger farm 
but was able to keep the smaller farm by homesteading it. In other words, moving back to the farm in, in the 1930s, when he was already along in years. And then that's where the family lived until, uh, in fact, until he died some years later. So in that uh, little town, Rusty was a seventh child of 10. The first seven, including Rusty, all survived. The last three all died either at birth or in uh, one lived to be five years old and died of scarlet fever. So just being a child was a dangerous business in those days. So Rusty was born in 1915. So Rusty, uh, in fact, was raised as if she were a twin to her sister, Betty, who was a year older. Betty had been sick or something, so they were wound up in the same year of grade school and all the way through normal school. They went off together to be teachers and went, went to normal school in those days. So they went to Ottumwa Heights, a Catholic normal school, and went there for two years and got their teaching certificate. So then uh, this gets us now to 1933 or four. Uh, Percy and Rusty met. The first time Rusty saw Percy, he was up on the windmill on the Berry Farm. They have a windmill up on water. And for some reason, Percy was up on the windmill. So the first time Rusty saw him, he was up on the windmill. One thing led to another, and they were married, as you rightly say. They then lived in, in um, so this is now, Percy was out of uh, college for three years or so and was living in Van Horn, not on a family farm, but in town. It was, but, but these were, this was the depression. So you worked wherever you could get a job. So you worked in a grocery store, taught school, anything. Uh, at one time, they had a job shoveling snow for the railroad, if you can believe this. The snow had piled up so high they couldn't get the railroad plows through. So they hired everybody in sight to get out with shovels and shovel the snow bank over. Uh, but rather than go to the city or something, Percy stayed in Van Horn. Uh, so they married. They lived in a small house in Van Horn uh, and continued. They were both teaching school, I guess, at that time. Or one wasn't. They never talked much about those days. Those were not days of prosperity. So uh, Gary was born at home in Van Horn. I was born in the county hospital about 10 miles away. I was the first one in the family in any direction, born in a hospital. But my parents, of course, had all been born at home and so on. And then Gary was too. Uh, Rusty, and then later on, Rick was born in the hospital in Cedar Rapids. Rusty remarked that when Gary was home, Gary was born, she had the attention of uh, Aunt Kathleen, who was a nurse, Rusty's sister Amy, who was a nurse, the doctor who came and stayed, and the doctor's daughter, who was a nurse. So she had much better attendance for that one birth at home than she ever had in the hospital where she was chasing or sharing doctors and nurses and others with uh, lots of other people. When I was born, the deal was that the mother stayed in bed for 10 days. Well, now it's home with the speed of light, but in those days she stayed in bed fast for 10 days. So I was uh, raised for a couple of years in Van Horn. I have no memory of that, of course. Then in 1940, Percy got a job with the welfare office in Boone, Iowa, Boone County, and went to work there. He worked there as a welfare worker uh, until 1943. Then he went in the Army, came back, went back to the same job. But by this time, he was the director of the office 
And he kept that job really for the rest of his career, a long time. Turned down promotions because he wanted to do, I think, stay in boom, but also he, he's, uh, I think he learned the depression that uh, you, you don't take a lot of career risks. At least that's the impression I had. He was very successful at what he did in, in, uh, in as the uh, Boone County Welfare Director. In those days, you realize that uh, well, old people now get Social Security. In those days, farmers were not eligible for, so, for Social Security. Teachers were not. Government employees were not. Uh, self-employed generally were not. So a whole lot of people who were not qualified for Social Security. Now, that gradually expanded. But in those days, there were an awful lot of people who, when they got old and were poor, depended on the county for relief, maybe living at the county home, which was a farm, or uh, getting money. And Percy was in charge of all that. So he was in charge of the uh, of the welfare and relief system for a good many years. As a result of that, he knew everybody in town. Mm-hmm. You couldn't walk through town without having Percy stop and talk to 25 people on the block. Uh, so Percy was... Uh, the uh, let's see, he was he was the first one of his family to go to college. Pruney, who was next, did not want to go to college. So my grandfather bought uh, Pruney eighty acres of land. He figured that was sort of equivalent. And then Kathleen went to went off to college, and then Leland, uh, I'm sorry, it was Leland, and then Kathleen, but uh, they went off to college. So uh, it became a an educated family from the farm. Now, on Rusty's side, uh, the oldest was Mary, who went off to get a master's degree and teach at Ohio University for years and years and years in English. Uh, Chris was a college graduate and became a world-famous wrestling coach. Uh, He was an NCAA champion wrestler in Iowa State Teachers, now called Iowa Northern. Ferg did not uh, go to college. He stayed on the farm. Uh, Rita... I don't think went to college. Betty and Rusty went to college. I think that's all of them, plus the three that uh, died quite young. So uh, Rusty taught college, uh, taught high school. That person and Rusty were teaching one-room schoolhouses in uh, in the Van Horn area in those days. Uh, Rusty did not teach later. Uh, she still and of course raised the kids. When Rick was old enough to go to school. By that time, I guess I was in junior high. Uh, Rusty took a job working in a store in uh, the city of Boone. She worked for Monkey Wards. Then later, she uh, managed a small Sears store. And then later, she worked for Duffy Appliance as the sort of office manager. She did that really until uh, she retired at 65 or something. So they... uh, they were very good at being small-town America. Boone was a town of about 15,000 in those days. County seat, surrounded by farm country. It was really a railroad town. There was a sw- switch point for the railroad. So the Chicago Northwestern um, had major offices there, and quite a few people worked for the railroad. A lot of parents of classmates worked for the, uh, for the railroad. There was another railroad that went through town called the Fort Dodge Des Moines and Southern, which ran on a diagonal from Des Moines up to Fort Dodge. And Sandy's father worked for that railroad. 
and came to a tragic end on that railroad. So very much a railroad town right in the middle of Iowa. If the railroad had not been there, then the city would not have been. In fact, the railroad was there first, and the city was built around it. Uh, so growing up, so those were my parents. They became, uh, oh, let's say figures of note in the, the small town of Iowa, of Boone, Iowa. Uh, certainly everybody in town knew Percy, an awful lot of people knew Rusty. They, uh, Percy was also active in the American Legion and the Knights of Columbus groups in, in town. Um which was handy because later on, because Percy was active in the American Legion, both Gary and I were selected from our junior high school class, uh, junior year classes, to go to Boys State, which was a nice thing. So well, it only took two or so from each school. So we both got to go. That was that was nice. Uh, Percy was a, a reader, read everything. Very well informed, very bright, uh, and I was—I remarked once I found a college class book, he had a textbook he had, in spherical trigonometry. Now I never thought of Percy as a scientist; he took his degree in liberal arts. But in those days, if you went to Catholic liberal arts schools, you studied spherical trigonometry. Well, nobody does anymore. Mm -hmm. And I would have had a hard time to slog through it. Of course, one does that with other means these days. But uh, very impressive, very impressive guy. Very impressive parents, wonderful parents. In your photo collection, you recently dug up a photo of a 20-something aged Percy. Uh, and you remarked that you were surprised he was wearing leather gloves. Why was, <laughs> why was that? Well, he, he uh, definitely was... Uh, uh, zero interest in the farm. So he was definitely your white-collar worker right down to his fingertips. And he was a very, very powerful man. I remember once when I was 11 or 12 years old, so I would weigh, let's say, 100, 110, 120 pounds at that time. And I walked through the kitchen in the morning, going from the bedroom to the bathroom, and Percy said something, and I said something. It probably wasn't the right thing to say because Percy got up picked me up and swatted me on the bottom. So he's holding me up with one hand and whacking me with the other. And I was thinking the whole time, wow, he's holding me up with one hand. <laughs> he always had powerful chest and arms, which I'm, I'm sure he stuck with him from, from uh, his early days on the farm. But I never saw him. Oh, he was also the world's worst handyman. So nothing in the house was ever quite straight or the the screws didn't match the uh, this use. It was, it was just awful. <laughs> Even to the point, one time he was fixing something on the garage. The wooden building is a garage, freestanding garage. He was up on the ladder, and he hit his thumb or something. And he was mad. I was holding the ladder. He was mad. And he said something awful, and he threw his hammer down. Went past me. The the claws on the hammer scraped this, the side of my hand. In fact, I, I can looking right now at the scars on my hand. And, uh, when, actually, it didn't hurt. It wasn't very deep, but I said, gee, gee, you cut my hand. Well, I wish you had done. So I never said anything about it. Uh, I mean, what was I going to say? Uh, until years later, and then 
I don't think Percy ever believed my story. I said, well, look, here are the scars. I don't think he believed it. I'm not sure I would have believed it. If it had been you and, and I doing the same thing, I wouldn't have believed it either. So, uh, but it's the world's worst handyman, even though he's raised on a farm. But a powerful, a very powerful man in, in the chest and shoulders, uh, for, particularly for a, a white collar worker, or paper shuffler. Hmm. Uh, so you mentioned Percy's brothers and uh, sisters. What's the story with Ronald's nickname? Well, this was a one room schoolhouse. So everybody of all ages were lumped together. And one day when they were all kids, uh, they were doing some play and one kid was to be a peanut and Percy was to be a peach and Ronald was to be a prune. Well, peaches didn't stick to Percy, but peanuts was still called peanuts. Peanut Schlau was still called peanuts in his adult life. And Ronald became pruny. Everybody called him Pruny, except his mother. She was quite upset about it, but everybody called him Pruny. He called himself Pruny. So, and his kids called him Pruny. So he just, that just stuck like a, like a school name. Somehow that was apt. It just it somehow matched him. Hmm. I'll tell you another uh, one room school story. So Kathleen was quite a bit younger. She was born in 1925, I think. Um, so she was a student and Percy was teaching school. And she was remarking to us, us one time, uh, Kathleen's still alive in her 90s, that uh, she didn't really like being a student with her brother as a teacher. So somebody asked her, somebody in the family said, well, Aunt Kathleen, well, if, what did you do if you needed a substitute teacher? And Kathleen said, well, we had a substitute teacher. Who was your substitute teacher? Pruny. <laughs> <laughs> so Pruny prospered and as a farmer and eventually took over the family farm and eventually retired in Van Horn. Kathleen went on to be a nurse and went in the military, became an ensign in the Navy, met her husband Leland there. They Jean. moved to Cedar. Jean. I'm sorry. Her husband. I'm sorry. Jean. Yes, yeah. I misspoke. Jean, their first child's name, Leland. They had seven children. A huge family, wonderful people. Quite a few PhDs, in fact, in the family, medical doctors. Their daughter, Anne, the first one, Leland, was an engineer and eventually took a PhD. Anne was second. She took a medical degree. Her undergraduate degree was in music. She's the only person I've ever met who took, her, took a music degree and became a medical doctor. In fact, I'm not sure I like that idea. <laughs> I recall a photo hanging on the wall at the family farmhouse, and my understanding it was related to a, an award bestowed by either the National or the Iowa Corn Growers Association for highest corn yield in the state. And I think that's probably a remarkable achievement if I had the details right. Yeah, did, I'm uh, familiar. Yeah. Did Pruny actually work the farm at that time, or was there some agribusiness involved? Uh, later in later years, Pruny rented out the whole farm to a seed corn company. So he, he rented the land. They came in and planted everything and and uh, uh, plowed the field and planted the corn and 
cultivated the gut to weeds and came back and collected the uh, seed corn. Well, if you if you're uh, if the land's good enough for a seed corn, then you've got pretty good land. So if they had wanted to intensify the the production there, they certainly could have. And and I would not be surprised. I don't remember that one, but I I'm perfectly willing to believe it. Your uh, uncle Leland, who you've mentioned, uh, graduated from the same college as Percy. Uh, by that time, it was called Loras College. It was uh, Columbia College, I believe, when Percy attended. Yes, that's right. Uh, Leland was the drum major and an honor <laughs> student there. Uh, when he graduated, he joined the Society of St. Joseph of the Sacred Heart, commonly known as the Josephites, and moved to St. Joseph's Seminary near Catholic University in Washington. Uh, he died while on a, an accident uh, while on novitiate in Orange County, New York. You were only one and a half years old or so by then and didn't know him. Do, do you recall any sort of stories told about Leland? When Leland died, he was on a, a bunch of them were on a little pond there, a little really small lake. I, I've been there in New York State where they were at. Uh, several of them got on a little boat and they were on a little pond and they weren't doing anything particular and the boat turned over. So they got back up on the uh, came back up to the surface, and Leland wound, wound up being tossed up on. So the boat, boat now is upside down, but they tossed Leland up on top, and uh, he suffered a heart attack and died. So it was a boating incident, but it was actually a heart attack that uh, got him. And another, there were four or five uh, young men involved. Another one died too. So the, they lost two, um, uh, not quite priests. They were they're in the uh, way of becoming priests um, at the same event. It was a terrible thing. Now, if you look at the pictures of, of Leland, he was a, a good-sized young man, uh, beautiful golden hair, and uh, quite attractive. And uh, you, not the kind of guy you think would have a heart attack, but especially at that age. He was, what, 22 or something. Um now, a side effect of that, other than the fact that everybody you ever run into who knew Leland had something good to say about him, both not only his family, but other people, like you run across it in Van Horn. Uh, my grandmother went bald, that just all of a sudden bald. So she never recovered her hair, wore a wig for the rest of her life. And she was, uh, you know, uh, middle-aged, I guess, but certainly not old at that time. So the entire time that I remember my grandmother, she was always wearing a, uh, a rig. Not a very good wig, but a wig. It was not a cheap wig. I mean, they weren't poor, but uh, uh, never never quite looked right. Uh, but I don't know. Uh, uh, I mean, I, I can guess what happened, but it certainly had an effect on her. And the whole family, of course. So your uh, paternal Grandparents were Matt Berry and Lizzie Darcy of Van Horn. What do you remember about them besides the wig? Well, uh, my grandfather, Matthew, looks exactly like you, as you may well know from looking at photographs. Uh, handsome, with a long face. Now, he uh, was in his 30s, I think, when he married, which was not unusual for Iowa farmers. Uh, he grew up on the farm. 
uh, he was born on a farm. He lived the entire life practically on that farm. They eventually, in much later years, took a small uh, house in town in Van Horn. And while they were living in Van Horn, so we were teenagers, um, it was the custom in in those days out on the farm. I remember this too. On Fourth of July, they'd get uh, not exactly skyrockets, but uh, Roman candles and small small scale fireworks and set them off. So when they moved to town, my grandmother one day was arrested in our presence for shooting off fireworks in town, and she was quite mad about the whole thing. It became quite the joke in the family. Uh, I remember my uh, grandmother and days on the farm. Uh, uh, while she, uh, of course, had a substantial number of kids in the family, they always had to hire a hired girl. So they had somebody in doing helping with the housework. Uh, and when we had family gatherings, she always hired more people to come in and, and do the cooking and so on. Uh, so it wasn't exactly that she was. I'm not saying it was an easy life, but it wasn't exactly that she was working herself to death on the prairie farm. This was uh, rather genteel farming. But I remember my grandmother going out to the chicken yard and grabbing a rooster by the neck and swinging it around like, <laughs> like this to kill it and then chopping the head off. And uh, that was uh, dinner for that day. So she, she was raised. Now, she was raised in a, in a peculiar way. Her father, her own father, had married... Uh, three times, I think. And there was a Kelly family. Well, when I think the first wife was named Kelly, when Lizzie was growing up and her father remarried, she didn't like that. So she moved in with the Kellys. So she was actually raised by the Kellys in some complicated way. And she went to boarding school, if you can imagine, in Iowa, in Tama, Iowa, the next county over, so maybe 20 miles away. Now, Tama was the Indian reservation. And I've asked several times whether Lizzie had gone to an Indian school or a missionary school or something. Nobody ever seemed to know. So she may have gone to an Indian school, or she, and I've asked Kathleen that, and Kathleen didn't know. She knew that, that uh, Lizzie, her mother, had gone to boarding school in Tama, but didn't know uh, whether it was an Indian school or a, a white man's school. And why there should be a boarding school in Tama, Iowa, I can't imagine. I mean, you could have gone to, Percy went one year, Percy and Pruny went one year to uh, eighth grade, I think it was, in Cedar Rapids. Now, I've never quite understood that story. I can't imagine they went back and forth every day. They must have boarded there. I do know that, that Pruny came back, as, got out of there as fast as he could, which I think was Thanksgiving. Just uh, pitched a fit and said, I won't go back, I won't go back. And Pruny told me why. He said the first day he was there, he was standing around, and one of the kids said something to a bunch of kids who were from Chicago, some boys. This is a boys' school. So the, the ones from Chicago took the other kid out behind one of the buildings and beat the hell out of him. Hmm. Pruny decided he didn't really want to go to school there. Uh, Percy stuck it out, I think, for the whole year. There's some uh, some snapshots of, of um, Percy at, uh, I think it was eighth grade, eighth grade graduation or something of that sort. Now, why they took it in their heads to go to uh, boarding school, I don't know. Of course, they were the person was very bright, and I'm sure they thought that they had to uh, do what they could to educate him. But uh, and they did. And in those days, the bright kids just simply moved ahead faster. Percy said, by the way, that was a very bad idea. He wished he'd never done it. If he graduated at 18 or 19, like everybody else, 
he would have uh, been more mature, more mature going off to college and would have eventually become a doctor. So uh, anyway, that's who knows. Might have. Uh, Matt, Matt Berry's parents were immigrants, uh, Patrick Berry and Catherine White from County Clare and County Limerick, respectively, just across River Shannon from each other. Do you recall any family, family lore surrounding the settler days? You know, uh, I asked uh, Grandpa Matt uh, and my grandmother about that sort of thing, and they really didn't have any stories to tell. They they were sort of aware that, that people had come over, but uh, that simply wasn't something that they uh, dwelt upon. They didn't. Uh... Now, Grandfather Matt wrote his own biography, three times at least, his own life story. I don't know what happened to those, but he wrote them in pencil and in blue notebooks, so I've seen them. God knows what they, what's become of those. Hmm. But they really didn't talk about that. They, In fact, uh, I don't know why. Uh, I learned more about their coming uh, from your research on the matter than I ever did from them. And I went to some pains to try to gather up family stories, because I think a family tree is uh, names in a Bible, but uh, family stories are a lot more interesting. Like Ferg and the corn sheller. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so why don't you tell that story while we're here? Okay, so Ferg, uh, this is now, uh, Ferg's probably 18 or 20 years old, working on the family farm. In, uh, so this is after the economic collapse, late 30s, living on the farm. Ferg's working there. Christy, had, whose name was George, but these days, in those days, you got a name and it stuck to you. So Christy, he was always called Christy, he called himself Chris, although he's baptized George, um, had gone off to college and he'd come back uh, to uh, after a term break and asked Ferg, Ferg, uh, I understand you chopped a piece of your finger off in a corn sheller. How in the world did you do that? Well, a corn sheller is a, you drop a an ear of corn in it, and a bunch of knives like this and grind all the corn off. So all kinds of knives flaring around. So Ferg said, well, I was working with a corn sheller, and I had my hand too close, and whack, he knocked off another knuckle. So I remember Ferg having the middle and the, the middle two fingers of his uh, hand abbreviated. So that was, that was the uh, Ferg and the corn sheller story. The other half of that is a, a Christie was a very good wrestler, a national champion wrestler. When, when he came home, he and Ferg wrestled, and Ferg could pin Christie. So Ferg was a very big, powerful man. Probably the biggest, I think, of the whole bunch. You see family pictures. There's Ferg standing half a head over everybody else. He had a big, deep voice. <laughs> that uh, you could hear a long ways away. I remember once we went to a wake. Ferg was, this was a Marengo when we were living there during the war. Um, maybe a little bit later. We, we, in fact, I'm sure it was a little bit later because the wake was for the woman who was our second grade teacher, Mrs. Burns. So everybody knew Mrs. Burns. So we went to the wake. Ferg came in, put his hat on. The, everybody wore hats. Men wore hats in those days. So here's a bench people putting hats down. Fred came in and said in his great big voice, he says, well, this is a good Christian gathering. 
and the last son of a bitch out gets the old hat. <laughs> Wonder if there was a contest for that. <laughs> I don't know. So go back to Grandfather Matt. He had to bury a mumble. A lot of people never figured out what Percy was saying because he talked very fast. Uh, it wasn't the problem exactly of speed with uh, Grandfather Matthew. I never understood a word he said. He <laughs> now Percy could understand him, but I never knew anybody else. Craig couldn't understand him. Uh, friends I've known couldn't understand him. He, he just had a the world's worst mumble. Much worse than I, I must say. I think. So I never he never I never learned much from him because I couldn't understand him. I carry, I, used to, I carry on the tradition myself. Yes, that's very important. <laughs> you have to have a family trait. Uh now I can understand my grandmother, she talked distinctly, but I don't I don't know why. Now my grandfather Flanagan, uh, Rusty's mother, by the uh, Rusty's father. By the time I knew him, it was well along in years, and he had a stroke and uh, did not speak at all. So I never heard a word from him. He was very pleasant. He was there and he played cards and so on. But uh, they said, uh, in, the days, in those days, one said senile. So it could have been Alzheimer's. It could have been stroke. I don't know. But he didn't, uh, he didn't speak. Very pleasant and a nice big smile, but nothing to say. Hmm. Very sad. Uh, you mentioned that Rusty went to college, and um, didn't mention she was in Phi Theta Kappa, Academic Honor Society. But I wanted to ask if you thought that was unusual for women at the time to go to college. Certainly. Uh, it was not. In those days, you didn't have to have anything to teach school. But if you, had, if you were serious about it, then you went to normal school and took a two-year degree. And uh, that's what that's what you had to have to get, say, credentials in the, the city school. It wasn't until much later, the 50s, that there was a campaign to require four-year degrees to be a teacher. In fact, you still see that battle going on in nursing. You can get a nursing degree, a, a nursing uh, pin, if you pass a test with a two-year program or even shorter. But, and yet there's a big campaign for the four-year Nurses, of course, to stamp out or disqualify the two-year nurses. That same thing went on in the 50s with teachers. And eventually the four-year people, the credentials people, pretty well run out, won out. But I think most of the teachers I had, in, even in high school, were, were two-year types. When you think about it, that's plenty, really, for teaching grade school. What do you need? To, you don't need much trigonometry. In fact, it might get in the road. In uh, doing some genealogy work, found that every one of your ancestors for many, many, many generations was Irish and Catholic. And that makes it hard for genealogy work going to some known record loss, uh, going to the famine and going back to Cromwell. But uh, I was impressed by the cultural purity uh, <laughs> were, there, were there certain efforts uh, involved in that farming community to keep Irish culture alive? Or was that something that no one paid attention to? Uh, I don't know that they did Irish culture, uh, but the um, in history of Iowa, there are a couple of things to uh, get the big picture. 
One is that Iowa was purchased by Jefferson from the French as part of the Louisiana Purchase. It was then repurchased from the Indian tribes who were living there. That is, the army went out and said, okay, we'll pay you some money for your tribal lands here on the basis that you leave. So the army bought the Indians out and shipped them to Kansas. Uh, some few of them later came back, and there's now a reservation, or has been, of course, for a long time, in the Tama area. But it's about the only population of Indians in the whole, in the whole state. So this is one whole state that got, got uh, swept away. And now, at that time, Iowa was all tall grass. There were no trees. There were no trees between, uh, let's say, Columbus, Ohio, and the Rockies, between Columbus and Denver. There was nothing there but grass. Well, even though land was fine and tall grass was fine, if you wanted to make a farm go, you had to have a market. And that really meant that there was no, there was no purpose in living in Iowa, except maybe on the river towns. There's no purpose in living in the interior of Iowa until the railroads came. So the railroads were first, and then these little villages popped up along the path of the several railroads. There were four railroads that went across Iowa. Here, 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 and here. The uh, and Van Horn was a junction point. It was 100 miles from something. So every 100 miles, there was another division point. In between, there might be more villages. Well, the, the uh, railroads imported people and placed people where they wanted them. So one town would be all Irish. The next turn would be all Norwegian. Next town's all German, and so on. That, that pattern applied all across the state wasn't 100%, of course, but the uh, the town of Van Horn started out being almost all Irish. And the next little town to the left of it, Keystone, where Lizzie Darcy Berry was raised and the Kellys uh, landed, uh, was mostly Irish. Now, in the town of Van Horn, when I knew it, there was a nice Catholic church, St. Patrick's, but there, was, there were also two or three uh, Protestant churches. The total town was only a few hundred people, maybe 500. So relatively small churches, but uh, still predominantly Catholic. They had a priest that the ones I knew came from Ireland, and uh, they were imported by the diocese, and, was, and there they landed. There were plenty of, plenty of excess males in Ireland in those days, so lots of priests. They... Uh, you know, so t there was a certain amount of purity in the in the uh, in the line. Now, uh, how many of the see Percy and Rusty were both uh, Catholics? Williamsburg, Iowa, where they uh, where George farmed, was another place that was very largely uh, Irish. There were some towns that were entirely Irish, like Parnell. Parnell was so Irish that they had Irish nuns teaching in the public school until quite late, uh, until they ran out of nuns, I think. So yeah, there was a certain purity. Now, in Boone, where I was raised, almost everybody was Swedish. There were two Lutheran churches. Um, everybody was named Anderson. And there were only a handful of, uh, of Catholics in the whole town. So we had a relatively small community. There were two Lutheran schools, K through eight schools in Boone, and one Catholic school. The Catholic school was smaller than either of the Lutheran schools, plus, of course, the public schools. So there was a, 
sort of a geometry there that uh, had a, had its roots in Europe, but it was through the conniving of the uh, railroads that, that happened by and large. And the railroads pulled them west for uh, migration. So both the Flanagan's and the Berry immigrant families started in Pennsylvania, uh, working for the railroads or working as miners, and uh, seemed to have moved west with the railroad. Well, that was in the eighteen fifties. Fifties, yeah. Well, that was the big the big migration, and what million people? I, mean, I don't know what huge numbers of people coming in, and the attraction of free land. If you go back and read uh, Adam Smith, published in seventeen seventy six, the uh, Wealth of Nations, he was he was fascinated by the economy of the in, of the colonies of the what's now America. And he, and he knew that people went over as indentured servants, for instance, and yet the wages in uh, the New World, in Pennsylvania, say, were much higher than they were in England. And he wondered about that. And he finally figured out, since he was a self-taught economist, that the fact that the land was free, you simply couldn't keep an indentured servant. You could get up and leave. So you had to pay enough to keep a, keep a worker in a factory, say, or a shoe shop, you had to pay enough to make it as attractive as simply walking west and taking free land. Mm -hmm. So that drove, of course, created a, a perpetual labor shortage, which has really applied in the United States until the most recent times, that the wages are always high here because there are never enough workers. So this enormous empty space west of, let's say, Columbus, Ohio, out, at, out to the Rockies, so state after state, a thousand miles, was uh, was simply available, and people went and took the land. All you had to do was, uh, in the homestead days, all you had to do was go stand there, and it, the land became yours. Various times you had to pay something for it, but uh, generally speaking, it wasn't much. And uh, once you got there and got something going, then the land was so bountiful that you could uh, you could you could prosper. And prosper in a way that you simply could not in the old world, if you were simply a laborer, not born to the to the uh, royal families, not born to the purple, then uh, you, you could do fine. And uh, Adam Smith appreciated appreciated that, perhaps more than any other European at the time. As they moved west and settled in Iowa in the early 1860s. I was sort of curious whether any of them wound up in the uh, Civil War. And I could only find of your ancestors, just your great-great-grandfather, James Dunn, who served in the Iowa 35th Infantry, uh, serving in the Civil War. He mustered out at Bear Creek, Mississippi, but died shortly thereafter and is buried at the military cemetery in Vicksburg. Mississippi. Did you know of any others who might have been in the war? I've been to Vicksburg, but I didn't. Uh, I should have looked. I should have checked the cemetery registries. I didn't know that story. Uh, I don't know of anybody. I don't remember family photos of people in the uh, in the blue. There were, of course, quite a few uh, Irish or uh, Iowans who uh, went off to war. In those days, the wars, the battalions were organized by state of origin. There was actually one battalion, I'm told, that was uh, in the in the South that they formed up and joined the Rebs, 
but mostly on the on the uh, federal's side. I don't know of any uh, family stories about that. Let's go on to Boone. Uh, so you were in Boone for the early days of rock and roll and hot rods in the in the 1950s, and you graduated high school in 1956. Is that right? That's right. Um, what was that like? What was the the early rock and roll culture like in Boone, Iowa? Well, I remember when uh, seeing uh, Rock Around the Clock with Bill Haley and the Comets. Mm -hmm. We drove over to the next town to Ames to see that movie. I, I don't know if I had a date or not, uh, but some of us went over to uh, to see that movie, and, and it was the opening movie. This is a was um, movie, Blackboard Jungle. So here's Bill Haley and the really loud band. Now Bill Haley was the first big voice in rock and roll, but people pretty soon said, well, I don't want to look at Bill Haley anymore. <laughs> so <laughs> others came along, including, of course, Elvis. I remember very carefully, I was dating Sandy at the time, and this not the first record, not, not Hound Dog, but the next one, which was Don't Be Cruel, I think, came out. And that was, that was a big event in our town, that uh, there was another Elvis record. So I was, that must have been 57, I'm guessing. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so people were aware of that. Now, uh, I don't recall ever going to uh, drugstore sock hops and that sort of thing, as you see in the movies of that era. Uh, there were dances at the Y and that sort of thing. I don't recall ever going to any of them. Uh, people, people, we all had cars, so when you went on a date, you got in a car and you went someplace, and typically a movie or something, or maybe on a picnic, nothing very exciting. Uh, but we, we didn't move around as much as a, in a in a group as see in our in our day if you lived on a farm you could you could drive a car at fourteen. Uh, cousin Don remarks that he was driving uh, the tractor when he was eight. That's probably right. So hmm. the uh, in those days you could buy a junker for a few dollars, and uh, there was no such thing as a safety inspection. There's junkers all over town. Uh, the first car I had was a 1947 Olds. I was probably a senior in high school. Convertible. But this time, by that time, I was about nine or ten years old. But this is an enormous car with a straight eight engine and an early edition automatic transmission. The car had had white corduroy and red leather upholstery. This is a beautiful car. Of course, by the time I got it, was pretty old, but it was a convertible, and everybody ought to have a convertible once. In fact, uh, I think you have one. Huh? <laughs> uh, convertible and BMW, a little different. <clears throat> were, were cars necessary in Boone, or just uh, something to have, because that's what everybody had? Everybody had one. Uh, when I worked, uh, we need to probably talk about work history somewhere. When I worked in high school, I worked uh, two miles south of town, so to work, I had to have a car. But in fact, everybody had cars. Uh, if you could, we could buy that Oldsmobile I bought, I paid $150 for. Now, even adjusting it for inflation, that's not much money for, for a car. That's 100 hours labor. 
what was your first job? Is it the paper route on the makeshift bicycle? Uh, yeah, well, I walked. It was a big deal when I finally got a bicycle. I was oh. nine years old. I was nine years old. Uh, Gary already had a route, and he'd had one. He was a year and a half older, so he was, let's say, 11. And uh, He'd had a, a route for some months, and they needed one more guy, so I got offered up. So I went to work in December of whatever year that was when I was nine years old. And uh, I was out there delivering papers, carrying my papers in a bag and walking 60 or 70 blocks around town to in my particular district of town to deliver the paper. And again on Sunday, seven days a week. Uh, And then was really eight because on Thursdays you had to go around a second time and collect the money. So the uh, rate was 25 cents a week, of which I got a nickel if I collected. So I was taking a 25 cent risk to, uh, plus doing the labor to collect to make a nickel. Uh, thinking back on it, there really wasn't much fun. But I look at uh, grandchildren. In fact, it was awful. But I should tell you this. I, to, well, one positive thing, uh, and we can perhaps talk about this again some other time, but Gary was already a paper out, paper kid, so I could follow Gary around. At least he knew where the office was and he knew how to fold papers and things like that. So I leaned on him a great deal. I had my separate route, of course. But there was a kid on the route who beat me up every chance, he, every time he saw me, because he'd been fired by the newspaper company. So here I am, nine years old. I'm terrified that this kid will see me and beat me up. And here I am out delivering papers. Now, looking back at it, in fact, I knew at the time, if I told Gary, hey, this guy, Danny McNaughton, keeps beating me up, Gary and six of his buddies would have settled Denny McNaughton's hash in a big hurry. <laughs> but uh, I never told Gary about it. In fact, I haven't told him. I don't think he today. Hmm. Uh, eventually, uh, we had a, another fight, and it came out sort of a draw, and i that was the end of the Denny, uh, Denny McNaughton story. But I think I probably was still scared the whole time I was <laughs> delivering that particular route. And later on, I had a bigger route and hundreds of papers. And, and by that time, I'd saved up enough money to buy a bicycle. Uh, but the bicycle was full size, and I was not. So to to make the bicycle work, I had to take the seat off. So I had a standing bicycle <laughs> for some long time until I finally grew into it. Uh, that was uh, – and you, you may understand that since you live in Houston – that it can get hot in the summer. Well, unlike Houston, it can get really cold in the winter in Iowa. So this was a miserable place to have an outdoor job. But I had one for years. Now, later on, uh, what what people did after paper routes, as soon as they're old enough, which I think was 14 or 15, they get to work, you'd get a job at the grocery store in town, do weekends and fill in. And the, the, uh, the best one to work at was a fairway, F-A-R-E, W-A-Y. Mm-hmm. Um, now, Gary had a job there. They hired the football players. So it was uh, kind of nice to be working there as opposed to one of the other stores, which were just as good. But the uh, the disadvantage for the store was, of course, the football players would go off and play a football game. So then they'd have to be short on body. So they'd hire like guys like me originally to fill in. And eventually I worked there. In fact, I even worked there a couple of I don't know if I ever worked a full summer, but weekend fill in. 
But I quick when I was a junior or senior in high school, I got a job working at the radio station. And I worked there through high school and then partway through junior college eventually. And that uh, working as an announcer, but this was a small station. So working weekends, as I did, I did everything. I mean, I turned the machinery on and I tuned the tuners and I ripped news off their news machines and read it and found records to play and raced around. Um, and for that, I was paid a dollar and a half an hour. That was one of the highest wages in the city. There are a lot of people, adults, who did not make a dollar and a half an hour. The minimum wage was 35 cents, I think, in those days. So I was making a, an adult wage and more uh, as a high school kid. The, the advantage of that was I always had a little bit of money in my pocket. Not a lot, but I wasn't. Uh, I didn't run out of money. I wasn't much of a burden to my parents as, uh, as they probably thought I was anyway, huh. at least not money-wise. Did you cultivate the rock and roll music scene on the weekends? Choose what uh, kind of, choose which songs were played. Uh, absolutely, there were top forty programs, and there were classic programs, and there were religious programs, and I organized all of those. So the top forty were, were uh, there was a sheet, and you played those depending, of course, on what the I mean the, the station manager declared what was going to be done when, and so and how many minutes you spent reading the news and. Well, in those days, if you were doing a top forty show, you played any show, any tune you wanted to play. Um, later on, I think with computers and whatnot, it became more scripted. But in those days, you just—they said top forty, you played top forty. Did you take requests yeah. from uh, your friends who called in? That was always dodgy. Uh, generally speaking, the line was we would take recommendations because it had to be a little careful. Now, some programs during the weekday. Uh, it actually had people would write in cards, say, please play so-and-so for my friend, Mrs. So-and-so. My favorite one of those was somebody called, wrote in a postcard and said, please play the Mills Brothers song, You Always Hurt the One You Love, for Mrs. Mabel Fry, who's in the hospital for a pile operation. But the announcer who read that got the giggle. So he had the mic off and he was giggling. And everybody was giggling. So they were, they were choking. They couldn't get the mic on. They didn't know what to do. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if there really was a Mrs. Fryer or not, but it was a great joke. Did you have to have a radio operator's license for that job? Yes, I had a license, a second class license. I did not have a first class license. The the station manager had a first-class license. I think he was the only one, no, the station engineer, who was a college student uh, at, at uh, Iowa State. So he worked nights. He worked the night shift, and uh, he and his wife worked the night shift together and uh, or evening program. And then he had a first-class license. It wasn't that hard to get a first-class license. You just had to take a test, but I never quite got around to it. This wasn't required for what I was doing. Did you, did even, you even make, though your own, I, make your own radios, too? I did in high school. We had a class for radio. In those days, you had tubes, so you actually could see what you were doing. And we uh, built radios, repaired radios, uh, a little bit of television. Television in those days had tubes. 
but there wasn't as much opportunity for that. But I remember taking uh, amplifiers, professional amplifiers from the station that weren't working quite right and taking them back to the high school uh, radio lab and debugging them and testing them with a scope and this and that. And I remember the teacher, uh, Mr. Cunningham, uh, helping out, and we debugged what was wrong with the amplifiers and fixed them and put it back to work. So, yeah, that was hands-on. I had a class in called radio. It was like a, like a physics class, except it was a, that's all we did was uh, study radio, how it worked, and what the color code was, and sort of early electronics stuff. I don't know what people do these days. I don't think we mentioned the radio station call sign. What were the letters? KWBG. Which stands for Keep well, Watching that, Boom Grow. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, we worked that backwards. It was a sign by the, you apply for a radio license, they tell you yeah. what, the, what the letters are. So you had to work backwards to make something up. One of the, some of the earliest broadcast stations in the country were in Iowa, WHO in Des Moines was one. There was another one in Davenport. Uh, so the radio got going early in Iowa. Of course, you can imagine why. If you're on the farm, boy, you, you got a whole lot of lonesome. Uh, I spent some uh, visits with cousins, and you can get, you can get cabin fever in a serious way. I don't know how they stood it. So, so speaking of which, you were in Boone, and it seemed everybody else was in a different county. Did you have any close relationships with cousins or aunts and uncles? Uh, yeah, pretty much. We went back to, uh, the family went back to Van Horn quite a bit, and where my mother's family was in living was in Marengo, which was only 20 miles away. So we break, we'd go for a weekend and visit in Van Horn and go visit in, uh, then the next day in uh, in. Uh, uh, Bringo, and then come home. So long weekends, or even short weekends, we would, would do. It was only a hundred miles from Boone to Van Horn. It was right on Route 30. So you just take a left, and there you are. And uh, so we stayed pretty much in touch, particularly with Don Barry and his sister Betty Kay, and then the younger ones, Carol Ann. Uh, still in touch with Carol, and uh, there's another one. <laughs> I'll think of it in a minute. And then on uh, in the Bringo group. My cousin Larry Flanagan, who was Ferg's son, it was uh, Larry and uh, George. George eventually got a PhD in nuclear physics from Iowa State and worked his whole career at uh, Oak Ridge National Laboratory. You said now, uh, at one point uh, you called uh, Sandy the girl next door. Was that? Literally true. I think your family and hers both lived on Benton Street. Very nearly true. Very nearly true. The uh, uh, I was two years and a couple of weeks older than Sandy, uh, but I was born in December the 29th, and she was born in January the 16th. So we were three grades apart in school, even though we were two years apart. Uh, so that meant we really weren't in the same uh, clicks, <laughs> that's a very generous word, the same bunch of people in uh, in high school. And Sandy's family uh, moved around from time to time. Her stepfather, Don Coughlin, uh, they would move into a place, fix it up a bit, and then sell that and move up, work their way up. 
that's great if you're a handyman. And uh, at, for a while, they lived on, indeed, on Benton Street. Well, I did not, I, I mean, I was very, I was aware that there were girls living in that house, but never crossed paths with them, even though we, I suppose we walked to school within 100 feet of each other. Uh, but my, my one of my buddies, Larry Coughlin, was Sandy's cousin. So I would, I could never get a date. So uh, Larry said, "Well, I'll introduce you to my cousin." Well, at this time I was by this time I'd become aware of a girl who lived in a house, <laughs> but it, but it was Linda, oh. the younger sister, uh, who was a, a beautiful young woman with, with black hair. Delightful person, and uh, but I wasn't aware of Sandy somehow. So anyway, I got introduced, and I got introduced to Sandy. Well, one thing led to another. Now it wasn't exactly a girl next door because there was one house intervening, but it was we were within a hundred feet of each other, say, growing up and and hardly knowing each other until by that time I was out of out of high school. I had graduated from high school, I think, or very close to graduating. And Sandy was. Uh, what I guess a sophomore, and then we uh, dated. Uh, I went, I went to the junior college, so we dated then, and I went off to college, and we dated somewhat. Although it, I, when I went to Iowa State, I stayed there. I didn't come home every two minutes, even though it was only fifteen miles away. So, uh, and then when uh, when I graduated, we uh, became engaged. I went off to work for a year had to get a, save up a little bit of money anyway. Came back and we were married, and uh, so I graduated from college in 1960. We were married in 1961, and then we were married uh, for the next 50 years. Mm-hmm. We covered uh, paper routes and fairway and KWBG. Did you have other jobs? And what, what job did you learn the most from before you graduated from college? Well, if you don't, uh, I think I've talked about what one learns peddling papers when you're nine years old, and (laughs) that is you don't want to do that again. And you don't like that kid beating you up all the time. Um, So there's a certain amount of learning there. The the real adult job I had as a teenager was at the radio station where they trusted me to run this whole machine, a million dollars worth of stuff, I suppose, even those days, and uh, being responsible for everything. Uh, so I, I think that probably was a uh, connection. Now, later, I don't know why, but I gave that up and went to work at evenings. I guess it was in, in the community college. I got a job at the hospital. Um, I think the point was I got tired of working weekends when everybody else was off and being off on nobody else. So I thought I'd get a more conventional hours job. So I got a job at the local hospital. Uh, in the purchasing department mostly, but also depending on what they needed. So I worked in the purchasing department there a couple of summers and then evenings and whatnot during the uh, during my college days. Uh, so that was my first exposure to health care, which I've come back to much later in life. Mm-hmm. I learned how hospitals run. Your father... Percy taught me how to make taffy. And he also <laughs> taught me how to stir it, how to test it, how to clean the pan. And I don't recall ever witnessing you make taffy. <laughs> so why did the legendary Berry family taffy recipe 
never written down and passed down only to males, seem to skip you. Well, I, I have made taffy, but I must say you're right. I didn't make it as often as uh, Percy did. Percy really loved it. And everybody, and you're right, it's a secret recipe known only to the male members of the family. <laughs> uh, except that you better have somebody else who also knows it, because I can't, I could never remember it. Even the most, I, I, if you ask me today, I have no idea what was in it. Oh. Probably a lot of sugar. <laughs> I still remember. Good. I'll make it for you next time. That'd be great. I'm not sure my teeth could handle it anymore. Percy had a variant that I think was unique to him that most others didn't appreciate. He wanted to have black walnuts, and it, and the rest of ah. us wanted regular walnuts. Black walnuts, we that's could, right. We could tell who made the taffy by what kind of walnuts were in it. <laughs> well, we were at a, the, um, the Berry family farm in Van Horn. The way the front room was organized was a very place, handy place for having a wake. So if anybody died, they're all sort of related. So they always had to wake at the Berry Farm. And uh, the story goes, and I've more than once, people were wondering, where are all these men going? Hmm. Welcome, welcome there on your man here sitting for the wake. Well, it turns out they're all back in the kitchen stealing from the uh, taffy <laughs> jar. Uh, uh -huh. And that, that became the uh, another of the family legends about wakes. The other wedge legend, which I've observed myself, is that Percy always led the rosary because Percy could say the rosary faster than anybody else could in the whole world. <laughs> he could beat the Pope. He could beat Mother Teresa when it comes to saying that. <laughs> the, the, uh, I've had, I've known wakes where we were hardly even involved. They always had Percy come up and, and lead the rosary. You have two brothers, Gary and Rick. How much truth is there in the P story? <laughs> it's a wonderful story. It says uh, a couple of things. One is that Gary is a wonderful storyteller, quite imaginative. Uh, the The story goes that how come, the question was, well, how come Rick is six foot three, and you other two guys are kind of normal size? And uh, Gary's answer was, well, when we were young, we were quite poor, and we only had two peas for lunch, and then Gary and I had to split one pea, and Rick got a whole pea. That's how we got to be so much taller. Uh, Gary is a wonderful storyteller. Well, it's a wonderful thing to have an older brother. We could spend two hours talking about that. I've come to appreciate all that all the more in later life. Uh, Rick suffered a good deal for being quite a few, bit younger. So I was born in 38. He was born in 44. So there's six years almost to the day, but short a month. And Gary was older again. So, And when Rick uh, got to school age, uh, Rusty went to work in a store. So to a certain extent, Gary and I were in charge of raising Rick. Well, that was certainly to his detriment. <laughs> of course. But uh, And we were both involved in team sports, so we thought Rick ought to be involved in team sports and we didn't have a team so rick was wonderful at, at organizing things he would get the neighborhood kids and they'd make a a golf course in the backyard not just our backyard but six backyards and then they'd be putting across the street and all kinds of things that probably were very smart and uh, somehow we convinced rick that he ought to be a long distance runner gary was a wonderful athlete in, in the first place Baseball player, he got his freshman numerals in Iowa. Um, 
plays on the basketball team. He was a star quarterback. He was also a, a half miler. Now, if you go on the half mile, you can do anything. Well, so when Rick was about, I don't know, five, Kerry and I thought that Rick ought to learn to run the half mile. So here we had Rick running, a little kid out running for a distance. Well, he, Rick was running marathons as an adult. So, And, of course, Rick turned out, oh, the good thing we did for Rick, when I was in, I wasn't a bit good, but I was on the teams because Gary was. And I would maybe play until I got hurt, and that was about it. Uh, the uh, I'd play on the reserves until I got hurt. Uh, but to be on the basketball team or the football team, you had to be on the track team because otherwise you wouldn't have enough trackers. So I would go on the track. Well, I'd run the mile because that was what you couldn't do. If you couldn't do anything else, you ran on the mile. So that was awful. That was awful. So when Rick uh, came along, they were organizing a, a tennis team for the first time. So I grabbed Rick and said, tennis, not track, tennis. So Rick was on the tennis team. Now, Rick became, he used to win the Lawyers State Tennis Championship. And of course, his kids are uh, either on one college uh, tennis team. So he took that to heart. So I'm not sure he should still be doing marathons, but playing tennis, that's fine. <laughs> With. Well, the other thing is, I don't think Rick ever took up golf. Gary did, I think. Percy was a golfaholic. And it did me a wonders because I went out with him a couple times to caddy. And he would hit a ball in the, hit a tree. And he'd take his club and he'd pound it on the ground. And he'd hit a ball in the water. He'd hit the club against the tree and he'd jump up and down, jump on his club. So I thought, this is great. This is a sport I can forget about. So. I'm sure Percy saved me a million hours out of my life of not playing, not wasting time playing golf. Yeah, a million hours, a million dollars, probably. <laughs> <laughs> That's good, right, too. Uh, so with Rick that much younger, uh, and you were the middle child, did you have any stereotypical middle child issues? Oh, uh, I suppose, but... Uh, uh, oh, I, well... Uh, in the sense that Gary and I were almost the same age. He was a year ahead in school. So if there were any if there were any fights in the family, it was Gary and me. We never fought with Rick. If we were wrestling about something or mad at something, we were mad at each other. If we were throwing things, throwing snowballs, we were throwing them at each other. Now, Gary was always a, a wonderful man. But he always had a gang of people following him around. So all the other football players are just neighborhood buddies. There are six or eight or ten of them every place you look. So they'd come to our house and they'd we played baseball in the backyard, and they'd go someplace else. Or later on, when they had dates, they'd all sort of run around the crowd. So there are always plenty of people around the house. So I uh, attached myself or hung on or groupied with that much more than uh, uh, maybe I should have. And later, when they went off to college, then I, I wound up my old collection of guys, I suppose, uh, particularly guys going to junior college at the time. People I've stayed in touch with for years, in some cases. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, to, to the extent there were sibling rivalries, uh, it was Gary and me. Now, we were never rivals in a meaningful sense because Gary was a wonderful athlete. I was not. I was now my, – my best play in basketball, my best, best moment, was I think sophomore year, but it might have been a varsity team, junior varsity. I was on the bench. Big game. 
Our star player fouled out. He comes over to the bench. Coach stands up, looks down at down the end of the bench, looks down the bench. He sees me and says, Barry. I said, yeah, coach. He said, move down a ways. We need some more room <laughs> down here. That was the pinnacle of my uh, <laughs> although I got a, highlight. Yeah, it was, I got a, a college letter from Boo Junior College. So I can I can claim that. I never got a varsity letter in, in high school. I was on all the teams, but I was I got got the gate uh, sort of participation letters until uh varsity. But I never got a varsity letter. And nor would I deserve one. I certainly did not. But we never, so Gary and I were never in the same league. We might have been in the same team. We were never in the same league. He was a wonderful athlete. I was a Scabini. Um, on the other hand, uh, Rick, uh, Gary always thought of me as the, uh, as a scholar of the family, even though Gary was a, was a high grade point student. Um, and I, I mean, I had good grades, but they weren't, I was not valedictorian. Um, by a long shot. I was fifth, I think, out of uh, 150 or 160 students. Um, We're going to come back and cover school in another episode, and I guess we'll cover the Big Brother topic in another episode as well. Yeah. Um, maybe we'll wrap up this one with a question about your mother and father. What did, what did you admire about your mother and father through all these childhood years? Let me just kibitz one thing. When Rick came along, Rick was a wonderful athlete, not only tennis, but he was also a good football player. I think he played in the basketball Yeah, I'm sure he played in the basketball team. So he was, he was, and they had a baseball team by then. So he, Rick was good at all of those things. Plus, he was six foot three, which never hurts in almost any sport. Mm -hmm. Now, to go back to your question, what do I admire? Percy well, was always there. Percy went to. Every, uh, if we had a Little League game, we didn't have Little League in the modern sense, but we've we got Midget League and that sort of thing. If there was a baseball game, Percy was there. Uh, if we went someplace else, Percy was there. Playing the football team, Percy was there. He always was there. Uh, Percy was, uh, I wouldn't say he was a strict disciplinarian, but he might give us a whack if we needed. Now, I don't think he ever gave me as many whacks as I probably deserved. Uh, but very supportive. Uh, my mother was uh, rusty. Was what she, she was. Uh, I can't say she was a homebody. Said she worked in a store, uh, store hours, really. Uh, all practically all the years I remember. Always there. Never. Uh, I remember when uh, even during the war. So when I was in like second grade, uh, rusty always read to us every evening. I remember she read the Three Musketeers to us. I mean, that's what it stuck to my mind. So uh, Gary and I would sit there and she would read. So that, uh, and they always went to the library every week and got books to read. So they were definitely readers. Percy was always reading. He'd get up early in the morning, farm habit, I guess, and he would sit there and read in the morning. He read in later years, he was reading either library books, but quite often, uh, westerns. He loved westerns. And he had quite a few collections of books, too, small collections he'd gotten over the years of Zane Gray books and uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs and that sort of thing. Um, so he, he, he very, very bright, uh, educated in the, as you correctly say, Columbia College 
sense, a liberal arts sense. And uh, I don't recall that he spent a lot of time uh, reading history or something like that, but he was very well informed. Uh, Rusty was, um, uh, what, very interested in us in, was Rusty who looked at our report cards. It was Rusty who got called when some teacher was mad at us. Um, and Rusty was very, very supportive. That's it. Both very supportive. But they had, they had expectations. I mean, if you're nine years old, you get a job. That's the way they were raised. And they were working at three or five or something on the farm. Hey, if you're nine, what do you mean you're sitting around the house? Get on and get a job. Uh, that was an expectation. Uh, so, but otherwise, I don't know. They were always there. And they were doing what, what people did. They were they were healthy. Uh, so we didn't have lost time events there. Except I remember one time Percy was, they were building a little league field. Percy was shoveling cement. And somehow the, the cement machine which turns around. Came around and whack Percy, knocked him off the 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 uh, truck. He mm. broke his leg, so mm. he was at home with a broken leg and he was in a cast for a couple of weeks. That's when uh, uh, when uh, Rick was about that age, uh, little league baseball in the organized sense came to Boone, and parents got together and and did things. And Percy was quite involved in that, and then he moved along as Rick moved up to the higher leagues. All right, this is great. Uh, we've got some good fertilizer for new topics as well. Uh, let's call this one a wrap. Thanks for listening to this episode of Barry.FYI. If you'd like to share your stories, please give us a call. We'd love to have your life lessons and your participation. Memories sweeten through the ages just like wine. Quiet thoughts come floating down and settle soft.